0: There is an identity crisis among the modern church, and when I use the modern church, I'm talking big C, I'm talking about the the global church, the big church, most specifically though in this context, the American church. But there is an identity crisis, and you can tell that there's an identity crisis in the questions that they're asking, that really uh, most people are not sure who the church should be, most people are not really sure on what the church should accomplish, and most Uh, certainly are not sure on the way that it should be accomplished. The questions that are being asked are questions like should the church become more modernized, like the culture? Should we begin to try to take our production, take our lights, our music, our, our deal, and try to actually make it where it's more attractive to the world so that then people are drawn to the church? Or, should the opposite be true of the church? Should the church be so distinct from the culture? Should the church be so set apart from the culture that we are not in any way even comparable with what you see in the culture? And thus, we stand away, we stand out. Or should the church go deep? Is the church primarily about going deep with one another, about going deep with the Lord, about plunging deeper and deeper and deeper into the the richness of who He is, into the richness of His Word, into the richness of the community that we have in the church? Or is it about going wider? Is it about trying to do everything that we can do to reach more and more and more converts so that more and more unbelievers might be baptized, might come and, and attend the church. The, these and many others kind of frame up so much of the society's questions and so much of the, the church world's questions on, on who it is that we're supposed to be at And how do we measure ourselves, right? Do we measure ourselves by the budget and by the attendance? Is there some other metric that we can use? Well, what we're going to do is over the next six weeks, we're going to take a break from our Sermon on the Mount series, and over the next six weeks, we're going to enter into a series that we're going to call Defining Church. And in this series, we're going to talk about what we believe are the core values for Iron City Baptist Church, those that we believe have been drawn for scripture because our hope is, is that we can, we can look to God's word and see who it is that he wants us to be and, and what it is that he wants us to accomplish and, and maybe even some ways to do that and, so that we might not contribute to the identity crisis of the American church. Now this morning, the sermon's going to be a little bit different and that this is kind of a an intro so i'm kind of i'm kind of setting everything up this morning and so if, it, it may feel at the end because I, like i'm leaving you hanging and that's because i am we want you to come back next week and the next week and the next week, all right? So right? We're going to be building on all of these things. And so this week I'm going to kind of give an intro and, and, and kind of let you know kind of the, the aim of our core values, the aim of our defining values. And then over the next five weeks uh, after that, we're going to kind of unpack those one at a time and kind of let, just kind of lay them out there and say, hey, this is who we intend to be. This is who Iron City wants to be. And so this is the target that we're aiming at. This is the culture that we're trying to build. If you're visiting with us and you've been maybe you've been visiting for a while, this will be a, a great opportunity for you to kind of know the heartbeat of our church and, and get a, your mind around the DNA of our church. If you're a, a long-time member, this will be a, an opportunity for you to, just to, to contemplate and to recalibrate and to, to make sure that you are living your life on mission. So if you have your Bibles this morning, would you stand with me and read God's Word together? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We will start in verse 34 and read to verse 40. God's word says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Throughout Matthew chapter 22... The Sadducees and the Pharisees are kind of going back and forth, and they're trying to to entrap Jesus. They're trying to, to figure out a way to stump him, to ask him a question that will discredit him, ask him a question that will embarrass him, ask him a question that will uh, cause him to lose credibility with these great crowds of people that are following him and listening to him and being healed by him. And by the way, that's, that's quite a task. It's quite a task to try to... Try to uh, to try to undermine someone that's setting everybody free and, and telling paralyzed people to get up. and walk. That's, that's quite a task. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees are working overtime. We're just days from the cross at this point, and they're, they're getting desperate at this point. They, they, they have grown to, to truly hate Jesus and to, to despise Him and to detest Him. They, they just want Him to go away. So the Pharisees open up with a question. Jesus responds, and the crowd is marveled. The Sadducees then, they, they go and they ask him a question. And the, Jesus responds and they're they speechless. And the crowd, the Bible says, is astonished. So as the Sadducees and the Pharisees begin and they begin trying to entrap Jesus and entangle Jesus. In fact, what they do is they only further uh, galvanize the crowd in Jesus' corner. As everything that they do causes Jesus to respond in a way that leaves the crowd in Jesus' corner. So all of the Pharisees are getting desperate specifically here when we get to verse 34. And verse 34 tells us that all of the Pharisees wanting to, wanting to entangle him, wanting to, to trap him, wanting ultimately to destroy him, they gather together to have like a summit, Right? They're, they're going to have a summit and where they're all going to come together and figure out there's got to be a question. With all of our brains combined, this one measly man, this homeless man walking around, born to a carpenter's family, there's got to be a way that we can deceive this guy. He's not even learned. He didn't graduate from Harvard or Yale. And so all of the great minds of the day come together and they begin to pool their thoughts together on how they might ask a question. And the question that they come up with is truly brilliant. The question they come up with is, what commandment is the greatest commandment of them all? The Pharisees had divided all of God's law into 613 commandments. There were 365 of them positive. Those are the are negative. Those are the thou shalt nots. And then 213 of them were the, the, the positive. Those would be the thou shalts. And so they had divided all of the law and... Now the question was: It's two hundred forty-eight, not two hundred thirteen. I don't know what I've said. Two hundred forty-eight positive commandments. But they had they had gathered all, and, and so the question was: Is that there must be some type of triage to all of this, right? There must be some type of, of way all of this comes and all of this fits together. And so what they would try to do is they would try to say, all right, this is a weightier commandment and this is a lighter commandment. And so among the, among the religious elite of the day, a common debate was, what are the heavy commandments, what are the light commandments? What are the greater commandments, what are the lesser commandments? Now, nobody would emphatically say one of the other because this could equate to heresy. And heresy was punishable by death according to the law. And so all of them would maybe make a suggestion, but but they never really could arrive at one. Because if you lifted up this commandment, it made you feel as though you were lowering this commandment. And that is the trap they have set for Jesus. That is the trap they have set for Jesus. This trap they have set for Jesus is brilliant because whatever Jesus says, it seems as though he's in a can't-win situation. If Jesus says it's this commandment is greater, then the expert in the law... Did you notice who it is? It's, it's the lawyer. It's the expert in the law. It's the guy that, that probably knows it the best out of all of them. So, in other words, they sent the guy that's quick on his feet, right? They sent the guy that as soon as Jesus says this, he's going to prosecute him with this other one, right? He's going to nail him to the wall. And so, they come to Jesus and what they're hoping to do is as soon as Jesus lifts up this commandment, the guy is going to nail him and slam him in front of everybody and say... Oh, but Jesus, do you not think this is important? Do do you not think God meant for this to matter? How could you dare say this, ultimately to make him appear as though he is either a foolish or a heretic? Probably to make him appear as though he's a heretic. But as brilliant as their question is, as brilliant as the question is that the Pharisees come up with, the collection of Pharisees come up with, it only goes to showcase how much more brilliant Jesus' response is. Because Jesus doesn't stutter. Jesus doesn't stammer. Jesus doesn't stop to contemplate for a minute. No, Jesus just answers, the Bible says. He responds. He responds unflappably. And what does he say? He quotes God's word today. And he quotes to them a verse that is very likely they had read that morning. Quote, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. We've talked about Deuteronomy chapter 6 before. This is the, it's the Shema. And so devout Jewish families would quote this once in the morning, once in the evening as a family. It was, it was kind of the, the centerpiece. They, they would have it written on the doorposts of their house. They would have it written on their fence posts. It would be everywhere. This verse is everywhere that they look. And so Jesus responds to their question by, by quoting a verse that they had quoted themselves that morning. By quoting to them a verse that they see every single day as they walk through the doors of their house or walk through the gates into their yard. He says it's to love the Lord your God. To love the Lord your God. Now you can imagine that the lawyer at this point is loading up, right? He's loading up. Now when Jesus says, love the Lord your God, with all of your mind and with all of your heart, with all of your, um, with all of your soul? What is he talking about there? Now, I think first the first thing we need to understand is, is that framed up, this, this main word that we see throughout Matthew 22 here is this word love, right? And the, the type of love that it's talking about in the greatest commandment and in the second greatest commandment is all built on what is the strongest word in the Bible for love, the agape love. And so all of them are built on, or both of these two uh, outrageous statements that Jesus gives, are three outrageous statements I think we see in Matthew 22 here, are all kind of founded on this word love. Now the first outrageous statement he gives us is the love of the Lord your God, but w- what does this word mean? This is not puppy love that we're talking about, alright? This is, this is not Facebook official love. By the way, my mom and dad, you want to know how serious it is to see if it's Facebook official, right? When it's Facebook official... Then, then you know we're getting somewhere. You know, I, I, better, I better I better, pay attention to who she is or who he is. And teenagers, you better make sure they know it's going to be Facebook official before you make it Facebook official. Because that's that awkward moment when, right? When I think you're a Facebook official and she doesn't. That's the awkward moment. So that's not the kind of love we're talking about here. We're not talking about Facebook love. We're not talking about puppy love. We're not talking about homecoming love. We're not talking about in one minute love, out one minute love. We're not talking about dating love. No, we're talking about committed love. We're talking about intelligent love. We're talking about devoted love. Willing love. Entering into vow. Entering into marital covenant love. Love that says, I don't care what you turn into. I don't care where you go. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care how sick you get. I don't care how poor we are. I'm all in. I'm all in forever. I'm with you. So what Jesus is saying in the first commandment is he's saying this, this is the type of love with which we are to love our father. This is the type of love in which us as his disciples are are to love the Lord our God. We are to be all in. We are to be committed. I don't care the cost. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care where I have to go. I don't care what I have to do. I'm all in with you. I think the clearest I've ever understood it was last year. Um, Most of you know that Miss Ora lost her son last year, tragically. And so I called Miss Ora and I was talking with her on the phone and You can imagine how heartbroken she was, and her her words were just soaked in tears. But I never forget what she said to me. She said, God is everything to me. She said, "I, I don't wait till the end of the night to thank him. I thank him all day long. I don't want to live without him. I can't live without him. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about this love, that says, "I can't live without you. I have to have you." And so you get everything. You get everything. I said this is an outrageous statement, and the reason that this is an outrageous statement by Jesus is because of one word, you can circle it. It happens three times in your Bible. It's the word "all." He says "All, right? It says, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind." It's outrageous. It's outrageous, extraordinary, because why? It's impossible for us. It's impossible for us. It's impossible for us to love God with all of our minds, and with all of our souls, and with with all of our lives. Even right now, if you just stop for a second and you contemplate, is there really any area that you can say is fully devoted to Him? It, can you genuinely say that there's, there's not a corner of your mind that where, there's, where there's lust or where there's lo- the desire to lie or there's, there's gossip creeping in? Can you really say that there's even a, a corner of your heart that, that isn't blackened somehow with sin? No, you can't. Now as we grow in the faith and as we, we, become, uh, we grow in our sanctification, hopefully those, those things lessen and hopefully the godliness increases. But the truth is, is that as long as we live on this side of the grave, we will never know what it means to give him everything, to give him our all. And so for us, and for me, as I read this commandment, I'm left despairing in a way. I'm left despairing because I want to give him Everything. I understand at least, at least a corner of it, at least, at least a, a fraction of it, the, the generosity with which God has shown me. I understand at least a fraction of, of the grace that, that he has bestowed on me, and I want to give him everything. And yet, like Paul, I always find myself doing what I don't want to do and not doing what I do want to do. I always find areas of my life where I've got one foot in and one foot out. I always find areas of my life where I'm not committed, where I'm, where I'm lukewarm. And so I hear this command as Jesus, and I hear him telling me this is most important. This is greater than all of the other commandments that you love him with your allness, that you love him in totality. And I'm left despairing because I know I can't do that. I know that I'm not doing that. I know that I probably won't do that. And what this commandment should make us do is grab even harder, even more firmly. Grace. Grace. You see, brothers and sisters, it's not, just, it's not just by God's grace that God loves you. It's by God's grace that you're able to love Him. It's by God's grace that you're able to, to return to Him and reciprocate to Him in any way, any type of offering, any type of worship, any type of devotion. And so as we come to this verse, as we come to this greatest commandment, there's, there's two things that we should, that, that two responses that we should feel welling up in our hearts as we read this outrageous statement that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds. The first is repentance. That we should be filled with repentance as we, as we read this and know, man, I just, I'm just not going to get there. I'm just not measuring up. And so we should come and we should lay ourselves bare before the Lord, throw ourselves on the cross of Jesus and say, I just need your grace, I need your mercy, I need your forgiveness, it's the only hope I've got. The other response, though, is that there should be in us a striving. There should be in us a striving. So there's this, this repentant spirit paired with this striving life. Like, I'm not there. Oh, God, forgive me. I'm not there. By your grace, set me free because I'm not there. And I'm not getting there. Oh, but I want to. And so I'm going to pursue it. And I'm going to go after it. And I'm going to go after it. So, so give me your grace so that I might be forgiven. And then give me your grace so that I might come after you and come after you and come after you. Because I want to give you everything. I want you to have it all. I want to be fully devoted to you. Now, if it were me, I would have been content to have just punked these guys like Jesus did with the greatest commandment. I would have just wanted them to say, watch out. But not Jesus. Jesus is going to give them more than they bargained for. Jesus is going to give them more than they were asking for. Jesus says, not only will I give you the greatest commandment, I will give you the second commandment with it. I will, I will one-up you. I, I, I see your greatest commandment. I'll raise you a second greatest commandment. Right? He says, not only should you love the Lord your God, but you should love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second outrageous statement that we see in our passage this morning. That not only are you to love God, but you're also to love your neighbor as yourself. That you're also to love other people. Now, when we, when we see this word neighbor, we should understand it in, not in an exclusive way, but in an inclusive way. And, and the reason I say that is throughout history, some people have, have taken that passage and they have twisted it. And they have twisted it to mean that I should love those in my family, or I should love those in my community, or I should love those in my church. I should love those um, that are the same race as me, the same ethnicity as me. I should love those that think like me, or behave like me, but none of that is what Jesus has in mind. We know that because of the Good Samaritan, right? No, what Jesus has in mind is much more inclusive. And in fact, when when he's talking about neighbors, you can just think about some of the times that Jesus talks about neighbors. Think about John 13, he tells us why. He says, we should love one another. He's talking about the church. So so church, our brothers and sisters in Christ are certainly included in that. But then you have Matthew chapter five, and he says why? He says, love your enemies, right? So even, even enemies are in view here. Then you have Acts 1-8 that says you, you should love everyone from your Jerusalem, from your community, from those that are around you, all the way to the ends of the earth. Which, by the way, means I, I've heard people criticize foreign missions that like you got to fly over a lot of lost people to get there, don't you? Brothers and sisters, it's always a both-and. It's always a both-and. We have responsibility to take the gospel, to take the good news to the ends of the earth. Because at the ends of the earth, as far as we can fly, as far as we can drive, as far as we can sail, all of them are our neighbors. All of them. Image bearers of the Lord on high. And so when we come to this term, we should understand that Jesus is meaning for us to open our eyes and not just zero in on one group, but we should open our eyes and see Everyone. Everyone. That you should see the, the people that walk down the halls of your high school. The people that have a locker right beside you. The people that you're, you're driving past on the interstate. The people that you, you sit across the table with at work every day. Your grandkids that come to your home. Those children at the orphanage in Swaziland. All of them encompassed in this understanding of the word neighbor. Now why is this an outrageous statement? If it's the word all In the first commandment, in the greatest commandment that makes it outrageous, it's the word as. You can circle as in your Bible. It's the word as that makes the second greatest outrageous. That's that's crazy what Jesus is saying here. Jesus doesn't just say, all right, give your money to the poor. No. Jesus doesn't just say, love your neighbor. Jesus doesn't even just say, be generous to your neighbor. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, that for those of us that claim the name of Christ, for those of us who rest in his grace, for those of us who claim the victory of the cross, we have a responsibility to then demonstrate that love, to want for other people the same standard that we want for ourselves. To be as ambitious for others as we are for ourselves. To want them to have things that are as nice as what we want us to have. To want them to be healthy in the same way that we are healthy. To want them more and above everything, transcending everything. To want them to have Christ as we have Christ. That we aren't just to to give to the, we aren't just to love our neighbors from our excess. We aren't just to love our neighbors from our leftovers. We aren't just to love our neighbors from our hand-me-downs. We are to love our neighbors from our best. We are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We are to want them to thrive as we want our children to thrive. Their families to do well as we want our families to do well. As, as, equally so, that we are to, we are, it's not wrong for us to pursue our well-being, it's not wrong for us to pursue our family's thriving, but simultaneously we are, we are pursuing the thriving of everybody else too. It's no wonder the early church flipped the world upside down. It's no wonder. People are being slaughtered on the battlefields. People that would tell you they probably hate the Christians. And where do you find the Christians? Christians. Dressing the wounds. There's, there's people with the plague. Remember when the, you, you've heard about the plague? You've heard about Black Death, the bubonic plague spreading, wiping out a third of all the population? Nobody wanting to touch them. Nobody even wanting to shake their hands. But that's how some of y'all treat me, by the way. I know I was sick last week. I tried to shake some of y'all's hands this way, Terry Cobb, and y'all are like, whoa, easy. You know who cared for the people with the plague? The church. Who built hospitals? The church. Who has disaster relief tents? You ever seen an atheist disaster relief tent? Church. Why? Because we are living according to the standard. That we are to love them as we want to be loved. We are to treat them as we want to be treated. We are to give to them as we want to be given to. That we are to, to want for them what we want for us. Now we get, we're, we're going to get to this, the third outrageous statement. And that's really where I want us to land this morning. He says in verse... 40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, your Bible may say, instead of depend, where, where the ESV translates depend, if you have the NIV, it's going to translate it as hangs. All of the, all the uh, law and the prophets hang from this command. And I think that's a stronger translation. I think that's probably a sounder translation. Because that's really the image that, that we're getting at here. What Jesus is saying, so so in other words, Jesus is going to highlight why his response is so awesome. He's going to explain to them. He's going to give them the why. He's going to to leave it without a shadow of a doubt. This is why these are the greatest two commandments. And so so Jesus unpacks it for them. He says, this is why that these are the greatest two commandments, because all of the other commandments are hanging from them. In other words, all of the other commandments that we read in Scripture, all of the other 613 commandments that the Pharisees had come up with, all of them were encompassed with these two commandments that if you if you love God supremely then you're not gonna take his name in vain you're not going to worship idols you're gonna keep the Sabbath holy that if if you love your neighbor as yourself you're not gonna covet him you're not gonna you're not gonna commit adultery with his wife you're not gonna steal from him you're not gonna murder him certainly so all these other commandments and all of the other things that we see in Scripture, all of them can be, can be encompassed in these two great commandments. And see, what Jesus does is so brilliant because what Jesus does is knowing that they're wanting to see him lower the other commandments and lessen the other commandments. What Jesus finds a way to do is to not dodge their question. Don't you, first of all, appreciate that about Jesus? He doesn't do the political thing, right? He's not doing the presidential debate thing where he hears your question just answers something, whatever he wants to say anyway. Now he doesn't dodge the question. Jesus finds a way to answer the question, answer it it accurately, to lift up a greatest commandment, but he does so in a way that it doesn't lessen the other commandments. In in other words, instead, it it actually lifts them up and holds them up, and and they hang from it, right? So he's not lessening the other commandments. He's lifting the other commandments up. Brilliant. And so here's what I want us to think about. If... If it's these two commandments that Jesus says from everything else hangs from them. If it's these two commandments that, that encompasses everything else that, that our lives are to characterize. If, if these two commandments are, are that which, which everything else is, is built from. If, if these are the bedrock of the faith and the bedrock of the church. Then it makes sense that this is our mission, right? That it, ma- it makes sense that, that it's our mission then to fulfill these great commandments. That it's our mission to, to love God supremely and to love our neighbor as ourselves. To love all people as ourselves. That, that, that it's our mission to do that. That's where our core values come in. That's where our defining values come in. See, our defining values, what they do is they help us stay focused upon and accountable to our mission. They allow us to stay focused upon and accountable to our mission. Let me. I want to take those two words, I want to take that, the word focused and the word accountable, and I want to, I want to spread them out. I want, to, I want to explain them separately. All right, first of all, let's talk about what it means to be focused. Why, how Focused upon our mission. You see, there's a lot of things that we can do. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of things that we are doing. There are not just a lot of things that we can do. There are a lot of good things that we can do, Right? But when we read God's word, and when we understand that this is the mission, then what we have to understand is that just because we're doing things, doesn't mean we're doing the right things. In other words, our mission is not merely doing, our mission is greater than just doing. Our, our mission is greater than just, just going out and, and just doing a whole bunch of good stuff in the community. Our, our mission is greater than just going and doing a whole bunch of good stuff in the world. Our, our mission is, is greater than us just gathering together and, 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 and doing stuff. It's greater than that. And so what, what our core values allow us to do is they, they, they constrain us in a very healthy way. They, they constrain. In other words, they kind of uh, build a fence inside which we can run and stretch our wings and stretch our legs and go after it. They, they frame things up for us in a way that allow us to make sure that we're staying zeroed in on the mission as we do these things, that the things that we're doing contribute to the mission. That way, we know when we need to say no, and we know when we need to say yes. If we said yes to everything, all of you would be miserable, I would be miserable, and the gospel would be watered down. It would get lost in all of our misery and busyness. And so what our core values, what our defining values do is they, is they, is they, they build the parameters, they set the pace, they set the tone, and they say, all right, this is the metric, this is the, the lens through which we're going vi- to view everything else. And so every time something comes that seems like a good idea, we're going to measure it according to our values, and we're going to ask ourselves the question, is this the best way to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish? This is the best way for us to fulfill the mission that we have been given by Christ. What I think, one of the things that I think is extraordinary about the way that Jesus teaches, Jesus teaches and is teaching here, I believe, is that Jesus never teaches on methods, does he? Jesus always teaches on values. You ever notice that? Jesus never goes and says, All right, do this. This is the strategy. Go and, and have this Sunday school strategy. Go have this evangelism strategy. Go and have this uh, care strategy. Go and do it like this. Jesus doesn't, doesn't major in methods. Why? Wow, methods change, right? No, Jesus always kind of stands big picture, right? Jesus is always talking values. That's what he's doing here. They come to him and they are essentially saying, Jesus, what do you want us to do? What are we supposed to do? What, what's the greatest thing to do? And Jesus says, what, love? Now, for all of us Americans, that's way too abstract, right? We want Jesus to come with a, a 70-page strategy that details every way that we're going to build this great empire. You know what Jesus says? Love God, love people, love them, love them. How you want to do that? I give, give you some liberty. I give you some freedom. I give you some freedom. How that looks now is going to look different than it looks in 1,000 years. And how it looks in 1,000 years is going to look different than it does in 2,000 years. Just like it looks different here than it did 10 years ago. And it's going to look different here five years from now than it does right now. Because all of those methods have to change. And so we see Jesus throughout his discipleship, of his disciples, always, uh, always prioritizing values over methods. I think that's instructive for us. I think that's instructive for us because what we need to do, what we must do, is we must learn to hold fast to our values and loosely to our methods. We must hold tight grip, tight, gripped, white knuckled to our values saying, I refuse, I will not compromise, I will not back down. This is who we are, this is what we must do. But we must be open handed and saying, but the way we accomplish those can change. The way that we accomplish those will change, must change. As we move forward, and as we grow, and as we are sanctified in Christ, and as our culture shifts around us. See, I think one of the struggles of the church is that somehow we have so de-emphasized knowing that we really don't know why we're doing. But right belief, right knowledge, right, right being always precedes right doing. If you don't know why you do what, you, if you don't know what you believe, then you don't know why you should do anything. If you don't know what you believe, then you don't know what you should do anyway. Our interns that we, we used to have in our student ministry, especially um, the last three that we had, one of the things that we, uh, if if you ever if you're ever around someone that's young and the faith and they're they're energetic and they're anxious and man, we, I told you I've told you guys before, we need that around here. Like we need just that that rawness, just that. Let's go, let's do something. So we would bring these interns. They're going to be preachers, you know, and they want to do. Like, let's do. I say now let's go read some books, you know. Like, Oh, man. Always with the reading, you know. And I said, well, let's talk about it. Always with the talking about it. When are we going to do something? And I would always have to just, just bridle them back and say, look, until you know what you believe, you don't know what you should do. You're going to go out and do a whole bunch of stuff, and then one day you're going to realize all of this is wrong. I built it wrong. I did it wrong. Iron City, we've got to understand what we believe. Before we go out and do stuff, we've, we've got to understand who we are. We've got to be. We've got to be disciples. We've got to, we've got to revel in God's glory together. We've got to go deep in the scriptures together and then we go wide. Then we go wide and we go wide and we go wide. So we go deep and we go wide. To answer the question from earlier. The trouble is, is so, many t- so much of the time we have underdeveloped belief in overdeveloped method and so what has happened over the time is our methods have become our values because we didn't know anything else and so we don't value evangelism we value a type of evangelism we don't value worship we value a type of worship we don't value student uh uh, we we don't value uh, a type of discipleship we value a type of student ministry right so as we, as we move forward, as we, as we cut through the layers of this, what we've got to learn to do is hold tightly to our values and loosely to our methods. Now the other word I used was the word accountable. The other thing that we must be able to do is we must be able to hold ourselves accountable to the mission, to make sure that we are doing what Christ would have us to do, to make sure we are being who Christ would have us to be. Now I think this is a failure of the modern church because there's two ways that the modern church typically evaluates the success of their ministry the way they usually evaluate the success of their ministry is how many butts are in the siege, how many dollars are in the account, right? But those are arbitrary. Those numbers are arbitrary. I know great churches that aren't wealthy and aren't big. And I know great big churches that aren't great churches. Matter of fact, some of the largest churches in the nation are led by heretics. So those numbers are arbitrary. They're they're largely meaningless. What we've got to have is we've got to have a metric. We've got to have a metric that, that doesn't that doesn't that's not something that we can just count and beat. That's, that's the cheap way. That's the easy way. What we've got to have is we've got to have a metric that ga- gauges us by the faithful by our faithfulness to the mission. Again, that's where our core values come in. Are we doing this? Are we doing this? Are we doing this? Are we being faithful here? Are we being faithful here? Are we being faithful there? After all, brothers and sisters, it's not our responsibility for how many come to Christ. It's our responsibility for how faithfully we share Christ. We can't measure that by just counting the people in the chairs. For me, this is personal. Iron City is personal. For those that know me well, all of them, I believe, to the person would tell you. That outside of my walk with Christ and my family, there is nothing that I am more committed to than to the well-being of Iron City Baptist Church and to the moving forward of Iron City Baptist Church. I came to faith here. I was baptized there. I was ordained here. I had my first ministry here. I was married here. I preached my first sermon from this stage, right here, the big wooden cross pulpit you remember it I am indebted to the ministries of Iron City I am indebted that, that I am, I'm indebted to people that faithfully proclaimed the gospel I'm I'm indebted to people that faithfully lived out the gospel many of which are here right now I'm indebted to you always I'm indebted to this church always and I say that all to say that I am all in I am all in. I am all in on on doing whatever I can do to, 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 to work however I can work, to make whatever sacrifice I need to make so that our church can move forward. And we will move forward. We will move forward. By God's grace, Iron City will move forward. By God's grace, the gospel will move forward through us. By God's grace, we will do it. And we will do it the right way. No shortcuts. We're not looking to swell this thing so we look impressive to the association. We're not looking to, to, to radicalize the way everybody does church so that maybe somebody will write a book about it. That's not what we're about. Here, we're going to be about lifting high the name of Jesus and Jesus only. And so brothers and sisters, as we dive into what defines our church, I would hope that you will join me. I hope that you will join us on this journey as we, as we move forward, as we, as we press on, as we, we set the tone of the culture that we're going to have here that's going to define us so that we might accomplish the mission of Christ. Let's pray together.